Hey, good afternoon. You are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin Radio. And up right now, time shifted from its normal slot because, well, we're kind of lazy. It's Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpin Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this March episode of Buildings on Air. It's going to be a great show today. It's St. Patrick's Day, uh, and I feel we're we're kind of existing in a time warp uh, because, as producer Jamie just mentioned, uh, the show is a couple weeks, a couple weeks postponed. Yeah, we there was I can't even remember what happened, but bad bad things happened, and we just couldn't do the show. It's okay. Yeah, I I was all ready to go, and so I feel like it's going to be a fun show because I'm like I'm like existing in a time warp. I'm like channeling like my presence and thoughts from right. like two weeks this ago. This is early March, actually. If you're listening to this, it is not <laughs> March 16th. It is March 2nd. Yeah, exactly. So just, just keep that in mind. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really excited about today's show um, because, uh, well, well, at the end of the show, we're going to have a pre-recorded interview um, with Yona Freemark, uh, who studies transportation policy and uh, city planning um, at... Uh, I think MIT. Um, it's a great interview, though, uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, but what truly is going to make this show a banner buildings on air is the introduction of a new regular segment uh, with uh, Anjali Rao. Anjali, you're in the studio. Hello. Hi, <laughs> welcome, welcome. Um, our, our normal regular segment, Mailbag, is going to be coming up soon. Um, but, but this segment, I'm pretty pumped about uh i like very very nervously like was like hey angeli i've got this idea like i don't know like let's get a beer and talk about it like uh but but um but but here we are here we are here we are uh i think right now it's called the critics corner (laughs) we'll fix it later later. (laughs) uh send send in your names um but but you know this is the show where we talk about architecture and politics and um you know i think we we usually do a pretty good job of sort of like plugging into the discourse but i i really was kind of hoping that we would create a space where we could sort of grab from the popular conversation that is happening and um i don't know like no holds barred like offer up our 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 takes uh and i'm and i'm I'm kind of like hoping that they're actually like cool takes uh like like a couple steps removed from like the 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 fast-paced uh sort of twitter discourse and like you know, we're we're a monthly show. Like, let's slow it on down and think about like you know bigger implications and stuff. Like that that seems like a positive contribution. I don't know. That's that's the sort of is th- does that sum up uh, <laughs> what we're going to be doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that like in the in the journalism world, not just in architecture, culture, or whatnot, uh, we're very much thriving on what we call hot takes. Yeah. And who needs those sometimes? Sometimes you just really want to uh, absorb what uh, is going on in the broader conversation and yeah. maybe apply it to some longer standing issues um, or subjects. Um, and that can be, you know, there. there's always a news hook, right? We yeah. have to have a news hook. But um, I think that this is this is a really great opportunity to talk about like who's like what's what's being written about in the built world and why should we care about it? Yeah, totally. And and um and I'm super pumped because I I, I, always, I very much appreciate uh, like you 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 are like you're never shy of an opinion in in like the best 
<laughs> which which sound like I, I realize when I say that it like it sounds like it's like a like weird underhanded compliment, but it's I, I mean it, it. I mean it. No, I, I mean it in a totally genuine way. I, I think um, I, I always I always I, th- I think we we often um, uh, we, we share a similar set of principles, but often come at problems from a different direction. So I'm like very excited to have like fruitful conversations with you moving forward in the critics corner. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, shall we introduce, so, so uh, part, part of the idea I should say too, is that like, we're going to like broadcast in advance moving forward, uh, like a couple of things, like articles and try to give y'all some lead time to like read along. It'll be like kind of like a little buildings on air book club, but uh, like with like articles and stuff. Yeah. Um, so you can just skim them. Yeah. Don't, we, this is not a book club. <laughs> yeah. It's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give homework. I, this is yeah. the cliff notes uh, version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we've got, we, you know, this, this being the first, uh, edition, um, we have two articles and um, listeners will probably well the, the people who listen to the podcast version will probably be familiar with, with them already. Um, the kind of general FM listenership, maybe not. So we'll take a second to introduce them. We've got two articles on tap today. Um, the first is Refusal After Refusal um, by Nick Cordy and Joanna Klappenberg of Adjustments Agency. Um, this was published in the uh, Harvard Design Magazine, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have... Uh, a piece that was published in Common Edge by Mark Allen Hewitt called The B Word, How More Universal Concept of Beauty Can Reshape Architecture. And about three weeks ago, <laughs> before the show was postponed, these were like uh, these were a couple of articles that were sort of like on the on the tip of a lot of people's tongue uh, in 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 the architecture world. Yeah, in, in terms of anxiety, yes. <laughs> um, Kiefer, could you maybe talk a little bit about what the uh, just for the the Harvard piece? Could you mm-hmm. maybe give a little bit of, su- of a summary of what this is? Yeah. What they're saying so. The refusal after refusal piece, uh, basically, Nick and Joanna kind of go into here. They they're talking about um, some of the like problematics of architectural work and like what it is to kind of be uh, like I think a like a cultural producer (laughs) in 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 architecture at this moment. Um, For instance, to kind of set a tone. it's the, the the piece begins with what if we began by admitted that we hated writing this <laughs> which which i think like is a, is a good sort of like summation of where the article sort of goes um one thing that i really like about nick and joanna's writing is that they are always sort of i think have a kind of vulnerability um and 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 are, are sort of like very open about their kind of struggles trying to make their way in this weird world of architecture and be sort of like you know intellectuals within it um and you know, like um, that—that's—that's that—that I always really admire. I think the article then gets into some sort of history about um, uh, drawing from uh, Italian autonomous uh, political movements, um, which basically kind of embarked on a strategy of refusal, and uh, then Nick and Joanna kind of um, imagine uh, how how that. Uh, how Italian autonomism, like, m- m- like what that might tell us about today's moment, given that um, that that this kind of strategy of refusal failed to work for the Italian autonomists, mm-hmm. and and that's that's a part of the paper that I have some quibbles with, <laughs> like, because uh, but but we can we'll get to that. Um, is that a fair summation? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, okay. for sure. I mean, I guess I I kind of want to start off by um, with the premise that. 
I, I too grew up like watching Full House and every single day am brimming with disappointment <laughs> uh, at the world that we live in. Um, but uh, I just feel that um, a lot of what they're writing about, first of all, I wouldn't actually consider this to be necessarily like a popular conversation, mm. notably because it initially takes place in Harvard Design Magazine, which mm. is not um, an accessible publication, mm. um, nor is it really like a, it, you know, maybe it's a center of discourse for um, people who went to Harvard or people who pay attention to Harvard, but um, not necessarily for folks who are just have a general interest mm-hmm. in the built environment. Um, but, you know, the, I guess... The other thing I kind of want to um, preface this commentary with, um, I want to kind of give some snaps to Jenny Holzer, um, the artist, uh, for her truisms, which one of which um, I'll read. She says, affluent college-bound students face the real prospect of downward mobility. Feelings of entitlement clash with the awareness of imminent scarcity. There is a resentment at growing up at the end of an era of plenty, coupled with reassessment of conventional measures of success. Mm-hmm. And snaps to Jenny because she wrote that in the early 80s, which... Yeah. That that's almost it's interesting. I've never heard that. That's that's almost a. Um, it's very similar to a thing that that Marx has in the in the Communist Manifesto, where he talks about how like one of the defining features of sort of capitalist economy is that like this middle layer is always like propelled towards the bottom, and mm-hmm. it's sort of like cataclysmic and leads to either like re- being be, them becoming reactionary or like sort of like finding allies uh, in the working class it's 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 sort of uh the the more weirdo lefty version of that it's less accessible (laughs) well it's funny because when i first saw this um piece in the world um i was 18 and i was visiting a friend of mine um in minneapolis uh and we were walking through the walker art center sculpture garden Uh and um they had you know, dozens of Holzer truisms um, that were engraved into granite benches Mm -hmm. all around the museum. And um, we stopped at the nearby Blick and we picked up some tracing paper and we did some rubbings of these. And that was one that really caught my eye and Mm. really like sparked something inside of me because I had entered college, you know, that was my freshman year of college. I was studying art history. um, And that is that is an anxiety that um, I was feeling very acutely. Mm. And um, then, you know, I finished college and three years later in 2008 and uh, I walked across the stage three months before the housing market tanked. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like that it's something that just stays with me because of that. And so when I read pieces like this, um, it's, you know, the, the first of all, I, I do want to also tell the audience, those who haven't read this, um, that they broke up this essay into sections. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's like 26 separate like t- treatises of um of the challenges of work yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um but uh i i kind of want to like set the stage of the problems that they sort of bring up um just kind of tying it back to the experience of the marketplace and how culture is created and consumed and propagated right so like um it's hard to say this with like anything but like duh feelings but um we live in a world where cultural production is predominantly patronized patronized by um what is what i would call just like hedge fund managers <laughs> yeah um and that can be yeah. you know just you know independently wealthy um it can be uh those who actually do work for hedge funds um and uh they're the ones that sort of they have done their own version of short selling um yeah in this world, but when they are the ones that are the patrons of building beautiful buildings, new buildings, um, innovative architecture, yeah. um, they're doing a different kind of short selling, right? Yeah. yeah. So when, when thinking about these things, um, 
I sort of, I, you know, we have this like component of people who um, are patrons that are making um, architecture investigations into architecture or new architecture possible. But then on the other side, we have cities, right? Mm. We have cities that are run by people that are branding um, cultural production as something that is um, investment worthy, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of language right now that we use to talk about cultural production is like artists are invaluable to our world, to our cities, to our society. Um, you know, even IBM, tap, you know, like as a company, they're tapping into people saying like we're looking for creative people. Well, and and his, I mean, historically, there's they have a connection to architecture and this sort of, I mean, like Charles and Ray Eames, right? Mm-hmm. Like they did a ton of work for IBM in in the, in the sixties, and like it, it was sort of all all about um, as much as I sort of. Loved of Charles and Reims, I feel like that's like a <laughs> obligatory like our, our architecture, you know, radio show statement. Like, love the Eames, like, yeah. but but like you know, there there is this way in which like uh, they they sort of propped up uh, ideologically with their kind of work and. Uh, 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 you know, American capitalism, like in, in its heyday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, better, you know, for better, worse, whatever. That I think that depends on how you where, where you come from. Yeah, um, but I mean, what what kind of ends up happening is that like it this happens in a, an overt way, mm-hmm. right? That cities are sort of saying to people like, look at our art, look at our culture. It is a valuable thing. But then once things start going iffy, right? Like yeah. the market is right. The the thing that I just can't stop thinking about when I think about things like this is that like we live in a world where the market is this like psychic predictor, um, but mm. also has this like undeniable emotional content. The idea that like um, consumer confidence is the thing that drives um, our economy, where if people feel sad one day, they're less likely to buy things, mm-hmm. which means we're more more likely to um, the for the market to go down, which means the first thing that gets cut art and culture mm-hmm. um, and cultural production. Mm-hmm. So it sort of like entices people, right? When cities are like, we value this so much and then you go yeah, and you- Like and with the biennial Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then people, the young people, they go into college and they think that they can make a life, you know, just mm-hmm. with, you know, in cultural production. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're only disappointed to find out that they are just as inherently linked to um, the conventional economy as a realtor, Yeah, right? Totally. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, this is like we, we which is the, this, we're all workers, right? Yeah. And and I think uh, you 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 experience this very acutely when you go to work at a large architecture office. When like I mean like you you work on these projects and you never like you never get to like actually see or rarely do you ever actually get to like step foot in them see them like it, it, it's a very disassociated sort of thing and I mean it, it, it might as well be a kind of widget on an assembly line mm-hmm. except instead of an assembly line it's like you know your little chunk of you know workflow in 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 a kind of software system right for sure for sure and in and like the world of cultural production what that does is um, what is called the proletarianization of of cultural workforces yeah. right that you are consistently driven to it, toward innovation, like you have to be um, on the cutting edge. You have to be producing something that is so new, so different, such a hot take or on at the least, world yeah. you live in. Yeah, and then or like, if not, a, not an actuality, just like the performance of that. Exactly. Right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Branding yeah. of it. Precisely. Yeah. So there's, you know, you end up getting uh, cultural workers who are li- literally living on the edge of precarity constantly, mm. and this this extends, you know, from people who work in museums, where you know, if you get a job in a museum, the mm. second that something goes awry in the grander world. Mm. Um, your job is on the line mm-hmm. and you're the first to go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can't, I just can't 
not link architecture and real estate together in that way. That, mm-hmm. Like in Chicago in 2008, when the economy collapsed, you got whole buildings that were half built just stopping. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself should be something that um, brings people to uh, to kind of like th- this essay specifically. But again, uh, you know, I'm couching all of this in, in like this grander problem, mm-hmm. you know. Um, my problems with this is that pretty much comes down to the fact that there is no unique perspective <laughs> in this in this piece, right? There is no, um, I think that's an editorial problem. Um, if, you know, editors know that when you are receiving pitches from writers that you're looking for a unique perspective, you're looking for, like, you know, these, these things are being written about in a recycled sort of way and mm. they will like ebb and flow um, and come back and you know, resurgence of this conversation mm. I'm sure will happen again in another 10 years. But... Um, there is no real unique perspective. And I think I got most turned off by this piece when they started talking about how many prescription medications they were taking mm-hmm. and in order to focus. And like, I understand that it's being used as like a metaphor, right? Like I'm taking ADHD medication because I can't focus on mm-hmm. anything that I do. Um, I'm also not sleeping. I'm not taking care of myself. But I'm like, that to me brings up this whole other broad thing about like the prescription drug industry and like like those are other questions so i think that like the meandering nature of it was not really that Mm. effective Mm. and again like the the, what i just brought up like the proletarian proletarianization yes it's like when i learned um when i was in high school i learned the word universalizability (laughs) thanks to Immanuel (laughs) kant um i was like i can make up words now can't i (laughs) that's the rule that's been made um but all of this was actually presented in an essay um by the duo doxa um in this journal uh, called um, Ment Journal, it's produced. It was produced out of Berlin mm. um, in the early aughts. Uh, Federica Buetti and um, Benoit Loiseau were the editors. Um, I only know about this because it was my first proofreading job. Mm. <laughs> was to proofread this thing, um, but yeah, this essay sort of presents these um, ideas that are saying that cultural producers um, are not independent they are not independent workers they are not um independent of the market as much as you yeah. it may be presented to you sure. as such uh, yeah i i sort of agree i mean i think that like um i guess i but i just don't i don't have a problem i think with like the sort of like if if this is if this article is like stating the obvious i think that it's good because it's surprising that like it, this doesn't get stated yeah. more often which is why like i think i i in 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 this instance I, I the, the the fact that they're sort of I think giving a voice to what a lot of people are feeling uh, counter to a lot of you know sort of like you know like a, making a unique contribution I think I think I, I is okay for 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 my standpoint um, for sure but, I mean yeah which is why I mean I think it resonated with a lot of people for for that kind of reason um, for for me the issue that that I had was when they start to get into like the Italian autonomia stuff. Yeah. And like, and I stop quoting Franco Bifo Berardi. <laughs> well, I just like, I, I mean, you know, I, I look, so there's a, there's a great book about Italian autonomia. It's a novel by Nina Bellastrani called we want everything. And it's a, and it's, <laughs> it's a, a great and it's a, it's a really, <laughs> it's a fantastic novel. It's really easily readable, but it's like, it's like uh, the, for me, like I, I would, I would read it a million times. Like, um, in place of Negri, and um, which which is someone who they also kind of quote, who's like you know um, a prominent intellectual in the autonomia movement, but uh, 
but it, it basically tells the story of like this worker from the south of Italy who kind of just like needs a job and like has like no prospects and he just wants to like be on the beach and exist on the beach in like beautiful southern Italy but he like needs a job and so he ends up going to this fiat factory in the north of Italy and like uh, even the, and he hates he hates work and the whole time he's just like very reluctantly trying to get out of work and like and 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 support himself and but but he ends up in the process of like trying to like you know you know have a comfortable existence like on a beach in the so- south of Italy like accidentally becoming like a militant labor leader right so like <laughs> so like i mean like the the refusal was like it's like linked to this issue of like anti work um but and and but but it's it's it ends up being more complicated than that it's not like a it's a rejection of work but like also like that there is a kind of like re- like this almost sisyphean fight that you like have to engage in if you're serious about it mm-hmm. and like and and for me like that that that's part of it that like I, I feel like uh there's a kind of like fatalism in this that like i often i like identify with as uh, you know as, as, a, as a kind of struggling architectural worker myself um but like also like i think we we can fight and win and mm-hmm. i think we you see that all the time in society i mean yeah i mean my i don't know i guess i get caught up in the idea that you know why why is it that everyone is so obsessed with loving what they do for work like why is there an like a cultural obsession this you know um tech people tech bros i'm sorry bros Mm. um not all bros are tech bros um but the idea that like like, when you when you love what you do it doesn't feel like work and it's like but it's still work i mean why is it that everyone is so connected they're so connected to the idea that you're supposed to be in love with your labor don't you think there's like different versions of that because like i mean i think like it's, it would be easy to be like cynical about it like and and be like no like you know you're just kind of like chin chin up and like you know do do a do do a thing um but i also think that there's a version like there's a version of it where it's like no like everyone like is is entitled to like you know a, like a good life like mm-hmm. and, and the kind of like material well-being that like enables them to support things that make them happy like work or like work or not right like yeah. if it's laying on the beach or like you know like architecture brings me joy like and I would not I would like to, I mean I'd like to sit on the beach and do architecture <laughs> right but like but you know you know what I mean like For I sure. think I think that there's there's maybe and I don't know I'm trying to figure out like what that what how you would define that difference between like a good version of like you know like doing what you love and then yeah. Like, uh, and, and, and trying to differentiate that from like, you know, like, ah, like you just got to suck it up. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we, like we're, we're all living in this garbage. Like, yeah. you know, like, you know, chin, I mean, chin up. Yeah, I have no I have no like personal advice for people. But like um, all I can like, OK, there um, if you want to read a really great article that is not necessarily it's not about architecture at all. Yeah. Um, there is a piece in M plus one from a couple years back. Um, the advice columnist uh, who uh, wrote this response to someone mm. um and they the title of the the piece is called bank robin in brooklyn and um this writer writes in and says you know like dear abby i don't know uh i am really disillusioned because i can't seem to find joy in work and a lot of the stuff that i'm doing makes me unhappy 
and yet I'm expected to live up to an expectation of like you know loving what I do mm. and yada yada. And the response was like four pages long, mm. and uh, the, essentially it's called bank robbing in Brooklyn. Because the person's like, I just should I just rob a bank? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, is that the thing that I should do? And she responds with this really lovely piece that sort of addresses, on a very personal level, like um, the times that she found herself. Uh, feeling just as like disillusioned by the world around mm. her and she talks she has this really lovely piece about she's like I do yoga I like go like put my butt in the air I put my butt down I breathe in I breathe out does that give me any semblance of um, okayness no it doesn't mm. but what she does talk about is um, she kind of went through this like string of very unusual jobs that she did just to make money to mm. you know pay her rent and she had worked on a construction site um, in Brooklyn, and she said there were all these Polish workers there that were, um, you know, wearing masks and stuff because they were working around chemicals. And it was her job to like wave this wand that would measure, you know, some kind <laughs> of like radiation or uh. something. And um, she's like, then they would take this lunch break and they'd all like get a little drunk at lunch and keep working. <laughs> um, and she talked about the fact that she saw these people doing this work that they did not like in a very obvious way. And yet when they were all sort of together, she found that this like profound sense of satisfaction and like for me personally like as a journalist i again like this these are this can only be really talked about in personal anecdotes i feel in some ways as a journalist like i will never make a living doing what i do Mm -hmm. um and so i have to work other jobs right i have to work a full-time job so i can have health benefits um i i have to do that in, in the current state of things but like Maybe it's because I'm a woman of color who's been, like, consistently working under the oppression of, like, the patriarchy for so many years. But I feel, like, a little bit of a surrender that, like, mm-hmm. I should find satisfaction in something. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, if I can't be writing all the time to pay my wages, um, I need to find some satisfaction in things, you know, less I just, like – you know, fall over dead one day. I mean, I just don't want to end up one day regretting everything that I've done. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a personal component, but mm-hmm. like, you know, I can't necessarily say that like we we have to be so um, reductive about labor that, you know, everything we need to do needs to be something that we love, but instead that we should be cultivating um, environments that do allow you to go to the beach, you know, yeah. that do allow you some time away, yeah. um, that don't absorb you. And I think that, I mean, I hate to say that I've been waiting for a lot of people to die um, <laughs> in order to, like, accomplish the thing that I want. You should clarify that statement, uh, you know, since we're, like, on FM radio. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I've been waiting for a lot of bosses to die. Is that clear for you? Uh, it's, it's more buildings on air appropriate. Okay, good, uh, yes, good, yes, good. yes, yes. Um, but of, of old age. Yeah. Of, uh, you know. Yeah, the People that yes. have made the rules so far have made rules that yes. don't work for people. Yes. And um, while I sometimes like, I'll just burn it down. <laughs> and he's like, maybe I should wait for him to die. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's exhausting. And it's exhausting to do this. And so I understand the sentiment. Like, oh, I hate working on this. I hate, we, you know, this this group, they're like, we, yeah. we don't like that we yeah. are writing this right now. Yeah. Um, because it is exhausting. When, and living in this constant state of precarity is, in, like, is incredibly men- mentally taxing. Like, I mean, like, I certainly have my own, like, like, healthy well unhealthy share of like men- mental health issues yeah. and like you know stuff uh, very, very similar sort of 
I just think yeah. that we need we, to be we we need to be conscious of the fact that cultural production is inherently tied to a neoliberal economy, yeah. and that is done through individuals, it's done through corporations, yeah. and they specifically they without naming the Chicago Architecture Biennial name the Chicago Architecture Biennial because they say the, yeah. um, in the beginning like the BP stamp sure the, the well petroleum they, the last time they were on the show they it was about their whole sort of mini website yeah, that yeah. they did about which which listeners can if you're listening to the podcast version or on the radio you can go to buildings on air on iTunes podcast and mm-hmm. find that uh, but yeah yeah the, yeah, yeah um i and it's interesting to me because yes like we almost like fool ourselves into thinking that um you know we call them p3s in our industry private public partnerships that that's the only way forward yeah, yeah. and i th- i mean i think that that's the part that that i also like again not to keep bringing it back to the autonomia issue mm-hmm. but like i think that i think that nick and joanna would agree not to you know that that it all comes back to sort of neoliberalism i think that that's the kind of like one of the points in this article that gets a little bit weird. I think that they the 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 Berardi like when he talks about like autonomia uh, and they're kind of quoting this. It says, as Berardi elaborates, struggles for autonomy produced a new monster, laying the foundations for neoliberal economics and governance. When workers demanded freedom from regulation, capital did the same. Um, the monotony, rigidity, and harsh conditions of the industrial factory gave way to flexible hours and jobs in the global north, but also deregulation, precarity, and the withdrawal of social protections. The shift was ideological and cultural as well as economic. And I don't know that that's exactly like the the correct telling, mm-hmm. and because a lot of that autonomous theory uh, like comes from this idea of negative dialectics, and the and basically the idea is that um, you know okay if we follow Marx. Uh, like the history, uh, the history of the world is a history of class struggle, and uh, you know usually that gets interpreted as the kind of like you know the, the garbage rolling downhill mm-hmm. right at the workers. Mm-hmm. But but the autonomous kind of come the other way, and they say like no, actually capitalism develops in response to workers fighting. So it's like a, it's a little bit like a, the metaphor I use to explain their ideas. It's like a finger trap. You know, like the harder you pull, like the the tighter it gets, mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 like you know, so like the harder the workers fight, you know, the more kind of vicious capitalism gets in in sort of response, or the more it kind of adapts to mm-hmm. to new system to create new systems of control. So basically, they were kind of theorizing that like in the 1960s, like a lot of like what was happening with like the consumerism and all of these like huge leaps forward in 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 the spectacle and all these other things were like precisely like capitalists responding to like workers fights and so the idea was that you had to have like an an even more radical refusal than the kind of strike it had to be like a total like everything like just like like a social strike all too like a kind of cultural strike which which i which i really agree with but but i think where i really like hugely disagree with that kind of telling of it is that like that like the workers did not create capitalism like in this the workers did not create neoliberalism and so like that's why i think like the kind of nexus of their fatalism is like okay so you can't refuse because you just make capitalism stronger mm-hmm. but you also like can't you know if if you if you join it it's bad man feels bad <laughs> So everyone just needs to like we all need to agree on like twenty minutes that we can all just lie down. No one does anything. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think I think that the answer is that like it's it's not about like it's not about like ethics or like you f- 
feeling good. Mm-hmm. It's about like it's about like like socialist strategy, and like this is a question of socialist strategy, and and that's that for me is like where like I and I, I think it's a legitimate question of socialist strategy, um, and I think that lots of people like and have have answered this or responded to it. Uh, in all kinds of different ways um, and I think that there's like people in, in DSA right now who are like really grappling with this and like talking about like the spontaneity of masses and like what strike actions mean and industrialization and how do you de- organize like you know proletarianizing people and like so 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 for me like that's the kind of terrain that we should be like asking these questions on mm-hmm. and, and, and like as much as like we need to take seriously the kind of like feelings like that like for, for me like the only way that we actually like make ourselves like feel whole again is by by fighting yeah and not giving up so to like put that into like cultural production terms and Mm. relating it back to the article they they sort of talk a lot about um how they are disappointed or not they're they're, they're, they feel sad that they can't um that they can't uh you know write the academic papers and do the um you know go to the lectures and and do the gallery exhibitions mm. um because when they do they're not at work right mm-hmm. they're not like working on their building doing yeah. their revit thing yeah. um but uh, when they do go, people are like, oh, we're so jealous that you actually have time to do these mm. like intellectual things <laughs> and it's like, okay, but at the same time when you're going to show at galleries and you're giving talks at you know some auditorium at some academic institution this is all being underwritten by corporate people and so that's exactly what you're saying right mm-hmm. they're like we've we're like we've created a space for free thought sponsored by bp mm-hmm. and it's i mean like it's really hard to get away from it i mean i don't know if we're just going to have to say like again everyone just lie down for <laughs> 20 minutes um or if it's um you know and a process of you know like everyone talks about like decolonization is it like de-corporatization, yeah. de-sponsorization. Um, how do we unlink production from from the, the people who have made the rules and they're mm-hmm. going to keep changing them, right? Yeah. yeah. For me, I think we just... we. They, for me, I like I because and I, I think that they they have a similar set of questions, you know, like their their sort of chunk twenty four like talks about this, like, you know, uh, uh, architecture. It's well, let's see, I'll I'll quote the thing at length. It's like, <laughs> what produces this all consuming, obsessive, indifference architecture? On the one hand, the profession and the academy are sites of violence, uh, ridden with sexism, heterosexism, racism, classism, ableism. But perhaps even more than that, we have yet to find a work of architecture that is capable of cha- changing the status quo. On the other hand, we're obsessed with the belief that it could, since at the end of the day, all architecture changes the status quo, converting land into capital, emitting carbon dioxide, displacing people. In other words, we acknowledge architecture is immensely powerful, but find ourselves and all architects or architectural thinkers powerless. And here's where I disagree. Here's okay. here's where I have like here's where I'm like I'm like comrades, you're so close. Like, and I, I agree with you. Like, your assessment is there. But but for me, like this is I I have totally given up a long time ago. Like looking for agency in the architecture architectural object and so there's like there's this kind of like observation that like okay like architecture is always political for all of these reasons like we yes and like the kind of patronage that we were talking about at the at the top of the segment like all of
of that. But like, like why we still expect like architecture to do politics is super weird. Like it's, it, and to me, like this is where like we could all really benefit from like some serious study of like, you know, what, what they well, on the left we would call reification where like subjects become objects and objects become subjects. So like we imbue our buildings with this power to change the world and forget that we ourselves are capable of that. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so this is for me, I'm like, all like on the on the other hand, we're obsessed with the belief that it could. Um, so I because because it does, and so I think that this is kind of like an interesting paradox. But but I think that architects and architectural thinkers like are exactly the people who need to be sort of like unionizing and picking up the fight, and we need to stop expecting the things that we make to do it because like m- materially we don't have any agency to set the terms of production mm-hmm. when it comes to buildings. But we do we do have the power to organize in our workplace, and and sort of uh, uh, throw a wrench in the in the system of production. Like that's where we have agency. If we don't have agency over design, most of us, then that's where we certainly do do or could. Yeah. And and it's a hard work to like b- to build that collectivization. But that's tiring. It makes me tired just thinking about. I'm it. tired all the time <laughs> doing it. Yeah, I mean, but also I will say, like, the other thing, when we say we, like, who are we talking about even? Like, when they in that same paragraph, mm. they're talking about, like, the obsessive indifference to architecture. Like, who's, 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 like, architects obsessive indifference to architecture? Is it the public's? Um, I mean, again, like, we it, can, it I mean, be, from, oh, sorry. It might be because there's two of them, in fairness. Oh, okay, good. Um, <laughs> thanks. I, I was like, so we, like, we can live without architecture. I'm like, okay, great. I mean, I have, um, I mean, my true feelings, since I sort of, like, operate often in a more administrative role, mm. um, is that I am tired of cities um, using architecture, design, art, cultural production as a brand method, mm, yeah. right? Like, here, that's here. what's exhausting to me, is that, like, we can't seem to get away from the idea that, like, cities themselves are made up of a lot of different kinds of production, um, but we need to stop branding our cities in this way because it creates an expectation that um, there is a uh, there's going to be some kind of like livelihood in this community whereas in re- reality that community is suffering um, at the hands of that city yeah. um, and the hands of cultural production so like I just I really need like whoever the next mayor of Chicago <laughs> is could we just stop with this like year of public whatever like the year of theater the year of it's like you know, if we really did care about theater, we wouldn't tie um, all of our amazing the- theatrical institutions um, to Goldman Sachs. Like, right. if we really did care yeah. about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, we can talk about this endlessly, I think. Could we? Do you want to move back on to, uh, to neurobiology now? We only have five minutes left Okay, in this really segment. quick. Okay, we're going to... This one should be easy to roast. Yeah, go, yeah, okay. go for so, it. So um, there has been constant conversation um, about the word beauty. They're like the B word, as if it's a shameful thing to say. Um, and this common edge piece came out where essentially a person makes an argument that like based on um, you know theories of evolution and selection yeah. and natural selection and stuff that like... Um, quote unquote like beautiful objects help people like orient themselves around cities and and mm-hmm. you know f- 
connect them to the broader environment. Um, but the thing that I had a real problem with with this piece is that, like, we can talk about Darwin all we want and we can talk about, like, natural selection, but truly it's about fitness, yeah. according to Darwin. Maybe right. the – was he was the other one? I forget. Um, it's been a long time since high school biology. <laughs> but um, the idea that, like, fitness is a thing yeah. when it comes to natural selection, that, like, we don't just look for the yeah. most beautiful thing. We look for the fittest thing. So, so – the last like a couple years ago they had the Driehouse symposium oh my gosh where the you know um, where and it was all about exactly this like the sort of overlap of neuroscience and aesthetics especially there's a a big emphasis on architecture aesthetics and it's like it it was like really I mean it's shocking now like it it, it, I I was I was appalled like the whole time (laughs) but like uh, but but looking back on it I think anyone with half a brain would see like how much overlap there is there with like the kind of like alt-right like traditional architecture stuff yeah because there and 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 how frankly how poorly constructed like all of the all of these um all of these these experiments are that like get vaunted as like proving that there's some sort of like innate idea of beauty like i remember there was like one where they put a vr headset on people and no. had them look at like a modernist building no. and then one and then another at a greek temple no. and they tracked their eye movements so and they were like oh and people were so sad when they looked at the modernist building and so happy when they looked at the greek building so these greek buildings are innately better and like blah 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 and like you're like you're like no like you like there's so many variables in this experiment that you're like like maybe people have been socially constructed like in such and conditioned into this like this is like not this is like you're not proving what you think you're proving i mean okay as a side note there was an ignoble prize given to um, a bunch of researchers who studied um if people felt pain differently um looking at an ugly painting versus a pretty (laughs) painting but what they did is they shot people their hands with like really strong laser beams in order to measure pain anyway read that paper it's lovely um but anyway no the to me like aesthetic moralism like you said in many ways is rooted in white supremacy the idea that like western european ideals in the same way that like we talk about like colorism amongst you know like i am indian and uh, my grandma put skin lightning cream on my face all the time when i was a kid Uh. because she looked she she sees the western ideal as being more ideally beautiful um the I mean, granted, that's like rooted in other weird things, but there is there is just an in, inseparable tie. I mean, and again, like this, the reason why I wanted to talk about this piece is because there is an ongoing conversation, especially like when I look at like architecture, Twitter and stuff, um, people talking about the importance of beauty. And it's it's something that won't stop and it won't die. Mm. Um, but if it doesn't, if aesthetic moralism conversations don't stop, I am going to die. <laughs> like, I am going to die. Because I can't keep having this conversation over and over again that, like, when I look at someone, they're like, beautiful things are better. It's like, A, your concept of beauty is, like, very much informed by some sort of, like, obscure childhood thing that you had. And B, um, it's a little racist. And mm. and I, you can't, it's hard to look at someone in the face and be like, you know, it sounds a little racist when you say this. Yeah. And, have them react positively. Yeah. Well, uh, we are out of time. I, we need a, we yeah we need a we need a name for this segment. Like uh, we'll we'll think of something. Could we have a theme song? Could we have the the theme song? Um, 
what is it? Eric Carmen's All By Myself. <laughs> Maybe. Don't want to be. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think this is a, a, a very excellent first critics corner. Um, and then I, I, I feel bad sort of linking, li- like talking about uh, uh, Nick and Joanna's piece in the same breath as this sort of uh, the B word piece from Common Sorry, Edge. Sorry, Nick and Joanna. Yeah. It's not no, about you. Yeah. No, you're. You, you, I, I, Nick and Joanna, come on buildings on air. Um, <laughs> Uh, aesthetic moralist stay home uh, <laughs> <laughs> alright we're going to take a, qu- a quick break um, and we'll be back with the mailbag Angelique cool. thank you thanks Kiefer <laughs> well you gotta Radio. 
Did you know you can now stream Lumpin Radio on your favorite internet-connected devices? Just say, Hey Alexa, play WLPN. Lumpin Radio from TuneIn. And don't forget, you can take us with you anywhere you go. Download our app in the App Store. Lumpin Radio, make all your robots play us. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Hey, it's time for the mailbag again here on Buildings on Air. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm I I still love Love, love the 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 theme song that producer Jamie has put together. Uh, it brings me so much joy. Um, anyway, it's the mailbag, and it's that time of buildings on air where we answer your listener questions about architecture. And I'm joined, as I am most mailbags, well, <laughs> 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 most most of the time, <laughs> um, with uh, Anne Louis and Craig Rescue Future Firm. Hey, Kiefer. How's it going? <laughs> It's um, good. It's sunny out. Today. It is. It yeah, is. Spring is spranging, um, and uh, it feels good. I wore I wore shorts this morning. Too uh, soon to to go on a run, <laughs> and yeah, and it it was more more out of power of will than anything else. <laughs> I I have a question. I I feel I feel terrible because I spent you know the first f- you know forty five minutes of of buildings on air in the studio here uh, without realizing that producer Jamie, you something's going on with your arm. You, oh, my question yeah. is, are you okay? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I I tore a ligament in my elbow oh, back in December, uh, probably moving PAs or something like mm-hmm. that, but it's okay. I'm, apparently, I'm going to avoid surgery, so it looks worse than it is. I've got this really You've impressive, a, like, robot arm. Yeah, mm-hmm. thing, and it's just kind of a big ungainly brace that smells bad <laughs> and bumps into things. So, all right. Yeah. All right. It's all well, good. I'm Thank you. Thank you for your, your kind concern. You're Kiefer. welcome. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I... I've, Buildings on air. It's it's an audio show, so the listeners can't see, but I'm sure they can imagine. They can imagine, and now they can send you uh, good good vibes back the other direction. Sure. Should we discuss how to fix ligaments? Is that <laughs> it's outside our area of expertise. Well. <laughs> Mortar chipboard. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a little blood, glue blood and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, how you doing? It's blood doping. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but how about a first question, y'all? Um, I bought a black toilet seat with a silver glitter effect. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? <laughs> Keeper, where do Is you get these? Is it tacky these? or cool? I, I Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I laughed. Can you read it again? <laughs> so I, I laughed too because I, I found I got I I called these questions together two weeks ago and I totally forgot about them and I was like okay like you know postpone building the name I'm gonna go through my list again I was like cool <laughs> yeah I bought a black toilet seat with a silver glitter effect is it tacky or cool is I, it 1957 <laughs> I think it sounds like something Future Firm needs to put in our our future no office. no tacky 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 uh, no, don't I'm, put I'm glitter yeah no no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's your maybe? Okay, does the toilet match the bowl? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, tank? that's a good that's question. Good. I mean, they they have um they have black toilets at uh, Pleasant House, the new Pleasant House in uh, Pilsen. Oh, and they're really nice. And they're really nice. They are really nice in those fan. bathrooms. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Yeah, they they like <laughs> on one hand, like I mean, on one hand, like 
they 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 wear really well because you don't see any like grime build up or like anything <laughs> and so like in this way they like they they appear more sanitary but then for me i always feel troubled by it because the the nagging suspicion mm. that perhaps they only appear more mm. sanitary but most of the time like there's actually nothing to be worried about when it comes to that kind of stuff it's usually just mm. in your head so like i get twisted up in a knot here when it comes to there's the a lot of colors. french Foucaultian theory we could go here between black toilets <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't. I don't really want to necessarily go there, but uh, you know, we, we could go down that route if you want. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm gonna go with probably tacky, uh, but I think it depends mm. on the rest of your. Like, the- I could see that. I could actually see if anyone. If any architecture firm was going to pull off black toilet seat with a silver glitter effect, it's, it's future, future firm, firm for sure. We did go, you know, Beauty Bar has mm-hmm. a wallpaper that is covered in glitter and every like color is different, but there's a kind of consistency to the level of glitter. And Craig and I have been trying to figure out how they did it, if that is like a product that you can buy uh. or if they painted the walls and then they put, um, they like rolled glue and they uh. flung glitter kind of ubiquitously over the space, which we actually think it's the most likely. So if anybody worked on that project and knows the answer, we want to know how to spec glitter for every my, single one uh, of our products. My mom would know the answer to that question. One day my mom will have to it's come not on like, <laughs> It's not like subtly glittery. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like a yeah. glittery effect wallpaper, which I, I can imagine I could spec. It's it is like, like almost bedazzled. It is like craft glitter, but architectural scale. Have yeah. you ever seen that documentary in the making of glitter? No. No. There's a, there's a recent documentary that I think it's on Netflix about the factory in New Jersey. There's only three in America that make glitter. Mm. And it's a highly proprietary process. And mm. it was fascinating because they make just millions of pounds of glitter a year. It's you know, basically reflective plastic, obviously. So has, like, and so, acetate. well, yeah, they do. And apparently um, there's different grades of glitter. There's different right. sizes and shapes. I mean, all the stuff that like, I was like, I just don't allow it in the co-prosperity sphere because I can't get it out of the floorboards. But, you know, <laughs> now that you, you might want to look into that, Ann. Yep. Sponsorship I, for future firm house uh, and office will yeah. be the glitter factory. I I would think that you could probably if you had a good a good latex primer, you could probably just put Mod Podge on your wall and then throw glitter on it. That but is Mod what Podge we thought. comes in like, you know, two cups at a time. But you can water it down really easily. That's why what, what makes it great. If we can pour the glitter into the concrete as they pour the floor slabs of the new house, then then I'll be a happy woman. <laughs> you can order a specific concrete glitter. You know that? No. Oh, yes, oh they God. make concrete glitter. Man. So, but let's get <laughs> back to this toilet seat. <laughs> so, I think I think as long as the toilet seat matches the rest of the toilet, I think it sounds great. But if it is the toilet seat only and the rest of the toilet mm. doesn't match, mm. it then will be the, tacky. Yeah. Then it looks cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah, I would prefer to have pinstriping on my toilet seats. Maybe you know, go a little Arnold Roth yeah. there. But you know. yeah, I I think it's it has to be intentionality and something like a black with a glitter effect requires. Uh, an incredibly high display, like of, of maximum intentionality. Yeah, there better be good, like good lighting. <laughs> yes. It better be immaculately yeah. clean. The Natasha hinges. Natasha Leone should be better. there. <laughs> 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 yeah. Bowie should be playing every time yeah. you walk in. <laughs> yeah, Harry Nelson. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Next question. Um, well, what do you guys want a serious question or, or not? <laughs> what are we here for? But the, the real serious <laughs> argument. Is it about air work? conditioning in the middle of the room? We don't have any HVAC questions. Oh, this mailbag. This I've failed in my quest you here. Failed. Okay. Um. Um. But. <laughs> 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 okay. How's how's this? Um. 
how do you tone down a fire alarm? It's too loud. <laughs> is there a setting on it? Do you think uh, Kiefer is trolling us that like we set up this mailbag segment and Kiefer is like, <laughs> we're answering increasingly <laughs> <laughs> crazy questions that relate <laughs> that we don't there, know. This is maybe unrelated, <laughs> but there is a uh, there is a movement in New York City to change the si- the sound of the sirens on huh. ambulances. How interesting. Because everyone finds them more finds them irritating I guess Uh Um, and the idea is to move to more of I guess a European style uh, high low (laughs) siren which is uh, apparently (laughs) less irritating (laughs) it's called the melodium I believe it is is the actual name of the tone so maybe you can just look for a fire alarm with a from Europe, a French yeah. fire alarm. Yeah. I mean, I gotta, I gotta say, like, I feel like contemporary. F- so we have in in our uh, in our three flat, um, you know, our, we have a very diligent landlord who is all, like every year comes and brings us like three new fire alarms and like six nine volt batteries. So we have like fi- just fire alarms all like all over the place, and um, and and I don't think anyone has thrown an old one out actually. So they, they just they just kind of gather, um, but there's several on the kind of back porch, including one that like has to be from like 1953. It's like eight inches in diameter, <laughs> and like you know it's just like huge. And uh, has this look about it, mm. but but it 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 went off like a few months ago because it was just it was losing battery and started going a little haywire. But it was the most annoying sound, like <laughs> infinitely worse than like anything that like like I. I, I I know like, <laughs> you guys weren't there, so I, I, I can only like try to like give the feeling that this alarm gave me like form in in words, and I will I will always fall short. Like <laughs> I don't know if I'm actually painting a picture of like the trauma that this existential like, threat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I'm like gazing wistfully out the window, like uh, tr- tragically, like I you know, um, <laughs> God. So I think I think <laughs> I think maybe they have improved actually uh, over over the years the uh i find the most irritating thing when they beep like every 10 minutes when they're going dead you know just like one tiny beep because it's like not annoying enough to change it (laughs) god how thankless i mean we've we've just griped about fire alarm fire alarms but they keep us alive they Mm. save lives it's true but they they only exist to be complained about and then save people (laughs) what a what a tragic tragic existence if I can get <laughs> if I can become like an object oriented ontologist for a second for for this writer I think the best thing for them to do would be to hire an architect to renovate their house and replace all the battery fire alarms <laughs> with hardwired ones oh yeah Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Probably. Often people, uh, many people probably don't know know that that's an option. Yeah. You can you can hardwire it right into your electric system. Yep. And you never have to change a battery ever again. For Chicago, anything more than I think a two flat uh, that's required now. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah. Great. The more you know. Um, okay. How about this? Um, what's the most ridiculous design fault you've ever seen on a building? <laughs> we used to have um, we used to have a, a name and shape Tumblr. This was, I guess, like pre Instagram mm. called yeah. Corb Cried, where we uh, photographed um, like horrible the, building the, errors. The two of and, you? Yes, yes. Oh, that's so cute. But that's we, very adorable. <laughs> you know, when we first started dating, like that was like a hobby hobby we had. But you know, we tried to only um, photograph. <laughs> As you can imagine, our, our romance has been really sparkling. Um, but you know, we sparkling tried sparkling like a black toilet seat. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> with the right amount of glitter. I mean, when we were living in Cambridge, the facade of the Media Lab, which is designed by Ito Toyo, was like a bunch of tiny, like imagine, um, imagine a exterior wall that's made of many tiny rods that are about the size of a of, of a pencil that are repeated over and over to be a screen. And for some reason, they started falling off or something. So mm. we realized one day that they had zip tied like one million individual. Oh my God. Like facade pencil pieces back to the facade. I and f- each zip tie had been like carefully, you know, clipped so it wouldn't be visually horrible. But Basically, the whole facade was zip tied on. I, that was a moment when Corb cried. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I don't I know also, if that's been fixed. I also feel sorry for the they who who actually installed. <laughs> right. I wonder if I can find a yeah. picture and we can share it on the website. I'll, yeah, that'd be great. I'll try to get one after. Is that Craig? Do you have a more horrible error? I mean, that was probably like not the that's, architects. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, did they spec the zip tie? Like. <laughs> you know, do they specify which brand and all these other like? Is that in the construction documents? Like, how do they, you know, draw that one? I don't know. I I have a feeling they started failing and I then see. they yeah. went back and zip tied uh, them. My memory was that all of the little pencil things were tied to one another, but not back to the facade. And then they started flapping in the wind and kind of like banging on the side of the building. Oh, and so then that's they why tied they them to, like, back. Zip tie them down. I don't remember, but I remember uh, being like alarmed and traumatized by it. <laughs> What's your least favorite? What what most horrible building most, most design? Ri- most ridiculous design fault you've seen on a building? Mm. Hmm. Uh, aside from just building in a floodplain. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I guess I feel like everything that we used to post on Corp Cried was like you know like small kind of picky yeah <laughs> <laughs> picky things yeah. I mean, the one that I've seen is a project. Um, there's a there there is a house that exists in Chicago uh-huh. that has a basement that extends underneath the main load bearing wall of the structure, um, and so they they like at some point they like expanded the basement like a foot over mm. and uh, replaced the foundation wall with a beam that supports the brick wall above it um, that then goes into columns, that then goes into footings. Um, but um, they didn't adequately, like, water protect the whole thing. So, like, there's the gangway is, like, over the basement, if you can imagine it. And water is just pouring between the gangway and the house right onto the steel beam that is holding up the wall above it. And, this, and the whole thing is rusty that and seems horrible. Just, that seems like um, that seems like typical par Chicago. for the core of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. Um, yes. I wish you know we were trying to you know name and shame the the famous fancy buildings because like yeah there's yeah. a I don't know down the street from us there's that crazy drainage under the yard into the street oh, around yeah, the corner from Bridgeport Coffee. Yeah, we talked about it in the last mail. Yep, that oh. one's awful. Yeah, but we try not to you know name and shame regular buildings. <laughs> Yeah. Now that we are actually designing and buildings, buildings, yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> Neither. Now, now that we are actually designing buildings, I have much more sympathy for yeah, your yeah. Small, <laughs> small design. Flaws. Yeah, like your flashing was wrong. It's okay. We're, yeah, right. we're sympathetic to that mistake. Yeah. Our our flashing has not been wrong yet. Y- yes, that was just a figurative example, not a not a for, for a non-architectural example. audience. Explain flashing. Uh, flashing is a small uh, piece of metal that transitions from either shingle area to shingle area, like in the hip or valley of a roof, or from the edge of the roof into the gutter. 
Um, it's always a metal piece that is meant to direct water away from a scene. Yeah. yeah. It's not just, you know, something you do. Um, on St. Patrick's Day in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> like, like shooting a timpani, for example. Yes, Yeah, I love co-prosperity sphere. I, I really do. I, I, I never know what to expect when I come in for buildings on air days. And um, now we literally have out te- testing the construction of, of the sound booth here. Yeah. An entire symphony orchestra <laughs> yes. sort of get it, getting ready with gigantic vibraphones uh, yes. just outside. There's at least 10 vibraphones. <laughs> if, you, if you could see it, you'd be amazed. There's a yeah. full drum set. There's timpani. There's at least, no joke, 10 vibraphones out there. We should have arranged. If I had known in advance, I would have loved to have arranged an orchestral rendition of the Buildings on Air oh, theme song. Yes, that we would have just that. opened up the door. That would have been it is very percussive. We could yes. have, we could have done that. Yeah. yeah. Next, next 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 time. And I and I don't doubt that there will be. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your favorite type of trim style and why? <laughs> is what this are, an actual <laughs> listener question? Yes. You know who probably asked this question is our our new employee Paul. Oh yeah. Paul has been time. protesting baseboard. <laughs> <laughs> he won't draw it until you. <laughs> Really encourage him to. Well, he What's he got against baseboard? You ask him, man. <laughs> like vinyl baseboard? No, he doesn't no. want any base. He only wants like the fancy museum base, you know, where the drywall oh. comes down and then there's a reveal. Yeah. And the... oh, that's no good if you vacuum or clean your place. Let me just tell you that right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. No, but it, it, is, it is easier or it's e- surprisingly easy to install. So yeah. it's a cleanish detail. Well, mm. some contractors seem to charge more, and some contractors seem to charge less for that fancy detail, and I can't figure out why. It's maybe like something about their yeah. mood or character. Oh, they charge more because it's usually used in fancier homes, and they figure you're a sucker. Mm. So that Even though it. they use less mm. material. That's correct. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the difficulty is when it, when it comes to the – because the, there's – you know, thinking about the inconstructability, like trim is there to – like hide gaps, right? And like one of the more difficult gaps is the gap between the floor and floor ma- flooring material and the wall cover, and so which gypsum board or drywall, right? And so like, uh, the, but from a constructability standpoint, if you have the piece of plastic trim to like align that gyp board flush with uh, with that piece of trim is pretty easy. But then, but then your flooring detail, you can't have a floating floor, which mm. is what's very typical, right? Mm. Like. Uh, uh, the floor just kind of, the, the, you know, the drywall and the floor, they're just, mm. you know, hover next to each other and a little piece of trim covers it up. And, and, and when with that museum detail, everything has, to, something has to come flush. Mm. I have always wondered if a necktie is a kind of piece of trim in the sense that is it supposed to be concealing the seam of one shark coming together? Oh. Yeah, I think that's. I think so. That's a really that you, you that you don't want to see fasteners. But yeah. if you use uh, tape on the back of it, scotch tape, and you wear it extremely long. What is, what <laughs> like, is that? Also yeah, say? yeah. What is that concealing? Um, uh, yeah, heart of evil, heart of darkness. Yeah, and, and in this case, like the museum, the museum like recess trim is mm. like you know black buttons on a tuxedo or something. Well, like you can put a st- <laughs> you can put an angle yeah. there, like a steel yeah. angle or extrude aluminum angle. But to address Jamie's comment, that is the best. I think that's the best detail when you have a piece of trim that the surface of the trim is flush with the drywall, mm. and you have a reveal in between mm. the trim and the drywall. I, so you still have a hard cleaning. hard surface there for cleaning. 
and the wall looks flush. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I like a good, I like a good coved, integral coved base, mm. Mm. Um, which, which is when the floor sort of seamlessly with a with a radius comes up the wall a little mm. bit. Um, I think it's extra beautiful when you do this with a ter- like a terrazzo floor, um, which is like a pretty typical modernist detail, and mm. I like also like the most janitor friendly detail, mm. and it's very beautiful. It's, mm. It hits, it 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 it. Mm. it Presses both of my buttons, like my labor <laughs> activist <laughs> button, and like my like liking like sturdy things, you know. Button. Mm. Um, I would love to see the machine that they make that with. I've seen them doing like the yeah. center of a trazo floor, but never the edge. Yeah, um, this is really amazing. <laughs> it is. Oh. <laughs> it's, like, it's like our soundtrack. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love it too. I feel like I need. We need to like keep pace with a, uh, like we need to start doing like beat, like 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 poet, like spoken word poetry. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah I'm really back <laughs> Yeah, I, I I will say I I'm a big fan of molding and ostentatious molding. Even even as I am like a, I would identify myself as a modernist. Um, I feel like uh, we have at some point. Like like modernist architects like started to like just remove molding as like a kind of like uh, stand in for like aesthetic simplicity, and I don't think that those things always go together. I'm I'm like a big fan of like Seeger Loverance, and like Seeger Loverance mm. has like like awesome moldings. There's also a great book that I found from like the early like <laughs> from like the the early 20th century called like the Theory of Moldings, or maybe like mm. the late 19th century. <laughs> And it's amazing. There's a whole theory of moldings, and I had no idea that existed. And and it's it's a it's a, in the public domain now, so mm. you can find it on archive.org. But I highly recommend that. I sense for a those who are interested in training. coming up on this. Yes, I'm. I'm. I think <laughs> if, if with any luck, I will be teaching this uh, uh, next semester. <laughs> are you going to Are you going to design your own moldings? Uh, I would love to be able to design my own moldings. That yes. you mill, right? That yeah, that oh, that, that I would love. Yeah. I I would, but some someone give me a grant uh, to just make make art installations <laughs> about trim. <laughs> yeah, trim installations. Yeah. There's a fancy uh, Aesop store uh, in Cambridge that is just wood moldings repeated to become shelves. It's really Amazing. beautiful. I love it. Uh, next. <laughs> Great. This is like we're on an episode of I-94 here. We just need Shannon to do the readings and we're all set, man. It's great. Uh, Okay. So uh, flip side of what is the most ridiculous design fault you've ever seen? What is the coolest feature you've ever seen in a house? In a house? Yeah. And like, well, I don't know. We just went and looked at these cabinets the other day that you wave (laughs) your hand in front of a panel and like the entire panel lifts to reveal shelving. So when you don't want to clean the dishes, you like stash them all behind this panel and wave your hand and it just like closes down over them. And it hides, hides your dirty your dishes. Mess. Hides your dirty dishes. I hides whatever you're storing. Whoever it is who has that kitchen never has dirty dishes. That person <laughs> yeah. has an army of helpers. Yes. yes. That I agree. will clean There's their a very dishes. Expensive kitchen. That kitchen costs the same budget as the entire ground up houses that we're working on. So <laughs> as oh soon as they goodness. told us the cost, I was like, there would be no house to put this <laughs> kitchen in. It would just be a free kitchen. A freestanding free smart yeah. cabinet. I like, you know, I, I'm very jealous when I see older homes that like have like secret bowling alleys or um. secret swimming pools. Do you see a lot of older houses with secret bowling alleys and secret <laughs> swimming pools? Yes, actually, there are several in Bridgeport that are oh. you would not know of that that uh, are 
houses that date to the turn of the century and because they were in places that used to have either dance halls or bowling alleys they've got bowling alleys above like the main living area oh. um, or there's a place that I know that a buddy of mine renovated and he put in a lap pool uh, for his wife so cool. I mean wow. that to me is really cool yeah, you know. there is. I've seen an indoor pool down on like Pernell and Thirty Eighth or something. Yeah, that whole There's, that whole area of Bridgeport and getting into Canaryville has some like wild houses that I would love to see the interior of, as it's where all of the people who are like connected in some Chicago way or another uh, have have homes. Um, and, and, and take that as you will, but but they're they're really they're, some of them are really beautiful. Some There's of them are great. way over the top. But I want to. I bet you they have all of the gadgets and all of the stuff, and I, it's some really weird, wild features. There's a really nice studio dwell house down there. Ah, really? Wait, really? Ah. On, uh, I'll have to look it up where it is. But yeah, hmm. kind of like the the hill that these guys uh, next to us have too at Urban Lab. Oh yeah, is that the is that a geothermal sink? Is that what that is? Uh, yeah, I don't know what the deal is with the hill. We know I, what the deal is. Are we allowed to say it out loud? I don't know if we're allowed to say on the radio. We're not allowed to say what the deal with the hill is on the radio. But wow, well, way to just create <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. We can't reveal Urban Lab's, um, you know, secrets on, on right. in public radio. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm guessing that there's a, a, some sort of hidden structure there. But it is cool. It's nice to have, like, a little... Well, like, I mean, you never get elevation and topography in Chicago, so why not make your own? Yeah. How fun. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. future, future firm house will not have a bowling alley or a pool, unfortunately. Although maybe I could <laughs> yeah. talk Ann into adding a pool. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's right, it's right across the street, though. No. Yeah. 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 Can you see from your seat? I can't. I can't. I can we'll throw like, things at it. We'll wave out the window. You yeah. Know, yeah. We'll hold up a sign. Yeah, you should so get like some semaphore flags. Yes. And we'll we'll just signal back and forth. <laughs> when you're, you're late for mailbag. <laughs> yes. Send us some pizza. We can't get out of bed. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, Here's another question. Um, what is the healthiest kind of flooring? And that's a Dirt. Dirt. <laughs> I don't know. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, do they mean like emissions or do they mean like what? what Open for Or like ergonomics. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What? Open for inter- I'm, I The way that I would interpret this question is being like, what is the easiest floor to clean? Um, oh. And sort of like mm. what? Because like carpet like can hold microbes and things mm. in it. Like, I mean, a natural wood floor is pretty easy to clean and yeah. pretty friendly if you've got pets. I mean, most people with pets and pet allergies, you probably want either a tile floor or a mm-hmm. wood floor. Mm-hmm. Tile but floors break things if you drop them on them. Mm-hmm. A waxed wood floor, easy to oh. clean, takes a lot of maintenance. No VOCs for the yeah. finish. Mm-hmm. That's a good suggestion. Yeah. I mean, I think sustainable-ish um, material. Sheet linoleum is, is is great if you're a clean freak because it doesn't have any gaps at all, and you can just roll roll it out. Yeah, the it, lino it can stuff, be really, though. really, really beautiful. Um, but yeah, that's that does making off the linoleum gas. is yeah. Oh, and off <laughs> yeah. gas is like crazy. I mean, we we used reclaimed wood floors, red oak, and it mm. was just sanded and waxed, and it's nice. It is it is a pain in the butt to do it, but it's nice. Mm. Mm. Uh, next question: What will look most out of style about homes built today in twenty years or so? Black yeah. toilet seats <laughs> <laughs> with glitter. Uh, box forms tacked to facades and clad with bad hardy boards. Oh yeah. Yep. What we call contemporary doodads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mary. Yes. 
Man, Ellen, I call this, this that whole vibe SketchUp Contemporary. Oh, mm. good. I'm glad that yeah. we both have a nickname for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what else will look out of date? Um, Actually, those won't look out of date because most of those houses will probably be demolished by then because they are built yeah. in <laughs> in such a poor manner. I, I think that the, like... And I, I know I know you guys use standing seam siding. I've seen lots <laughs> of standing seam siding like houses, and I think I think you guys do it really well. But I, I think that lots of um, lots of folks are catching on to like that as Metal an alternative siding. to vinyl siding. Yeah. And um, I think that there'll be lots of like bad implementations of that that will look very dated in twenty years. I think there'll be lots of good like just like anything else, right? But. I've wondered about the like continuous kitchen, right? Like for the last 50 years, we've been trying to fit cabinets in like a continuous line mm. above and below same dimensions oh, and yeah. filler everywhere where it's not. And I feel like that is something that is on the verge of change. And even these fancy kitchens we saw were still in the same mm. system, but it feels to me like for uh, all of us forcing ourselves to do these filler pieces and toe kicks. And it feels like uh, that one seems to me like it's ready for a, big change and it will seem like all these kitchens seem really dated very soon yeah like too clean like too yeah. sort of or like too monolithic and, uh, right like mm-hmm. that there's like a kind of desire for them to be um really really homogenous and mm. i wonder if that's a thing that will go out of date and we'll see yeah. um, which makes more renovating open. them really horrible yeah 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 well because they're just so tricky and for no reason i kind of feel like it's that's going to be a system that changes yeah yeah cabinet envy is the uh the worst of kitchen remodeling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you actually have fewer cabinets, because we deliberately kind of downgraded our cabinets and went fewer, and the, when you have fewer cabinets, they actually feel fuller, and you don't keep as much crap around yeah. that you might otherwise. I think no honestly. upper cabinets is a really, really beautiful look. Yeah, like, I agree. No upper cabinets or just one or two open shelves. Like, that feels to me so contemporary in a way that bottom cabinets and upper cabinets does not sorry okay, i've been thinking about kitchens a lot lately <laughs> i mean like once we did the frankfurt kitchen, like once we humans did the frankfurt kitchen like it felt like nobody has strayed from that yeah. here's a question that a contractor asked me the other day he asked do you want are you expecting the floor to go under the cabinets or the floor to stop at the front of the cabinets ah. and i responded of course the floor is going to go under the cabinets but then i started thinking about it <laughs> and like that just makes replacing the floor harder in the future if you replace the floor before the cabinets but do you have uh, uh but then what, one makes, what would you do Kiefer? i would i um i would think about habrakan and habrakan a dutch architect had this mm. thing about like levels of control Um, And it was basically, like, about, like, the kind of degrees of permanence of things and how you should always, like, be, like, at every step trying to, like, leave the most possibilities open for, like, the step above, right? Like, uh, uh, and and so so people can have, like, maximum agency over their space. But so you think they'll change the cabinet sooner than the floor? I think they'll change the cabinet sooner than the floor. I don't know, because we're doing these. Yeah, we don't know. But but I also, that's, like... uh, I mean, I think it depends, right? I mean, I think What kind of floor is it? It's like this tile that looks like concrete, but they're big. They're like 12 by 24. So yeah, I would would think that I would make make a judgment about what I was taking a greater aesthetic gamble on. Mm. Like if I was, if I was like, you know, suggesting to a client like a very like, you know, 
avant-garde like floor system i would probably like design with the like the idea that they would might replace that first because it's more of a risk mm. like from a aesthetic standpoint mm. like also like or like what would may, maybe like what is more integral to like your vision as a kind of like design design author i mean i have a feeling that if somebody renovates that kitchen they're going to take out the floor and the cabinets and they're going to put everything new and so in a way it maybe doesn't matter and it's, it seems cleaner to put the floor all the way and then sit the cabinets on top. Yeah, that's honestly what I would do. That's what you would do. Okay, that's yeah. what we said. Right. Well, <laughs> That's what we're doing. We you, will report back how hear, it goes. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yep. With, the, the, with background music provided by the Vandercook Percussion <laughs> Ensemble. Yeah, and, uh, and we, we are, we're out of time for the mailbag. We I are, think. actually. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're coming up on it. Yeah, we're right. You're right. Yes. Uh, I guess I should play the theme song or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ann and Craig, thank you so much for another uh, edition of the mailbag. Um, thank you, Kiefer and Jamie. Yeah, we'll thank see you, you in a couple of weeks this time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right, because the time has slipped away, right? Yeah. yeah okay. All right, all right. That's enough of that. All right, that's <laughs> Yeah, stay tuned for an interview with Yona Freemark. It's a really good one. Yeah. It is. We'll go to that right now, and we'll see you guys, what, in two weeks? Two weeks. All right. A show where we talk about architecture, politics, sometimes more of one, less of the other. Um, and I'm here with Yona Freemark. Um, and uh, we're talking about Yona's recent article, um, which was published in uh, was it Urban Urban Affairs Review? Urban Affairs Review, right? yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it was titled uh, "Upzoning Chicago: Impacts of a Zoning Reform on Property Values and Housing Construction." Um, I'm sure uh, the 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 real buildings on air fans <laughs> will probably have already had uh, a chance to see some of the discourse around this article. It's been it's been um, covered in Slate, Atlantic City Lab, and a bunch of other publications, and kind of made made the rounds in Urbanist Twitter. Um, so, Yona, first of all, uh, thanks for being on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so tell us about this sort of the study. Uh, what prompted it? Um, uh, what the findings were? Give us, give us the 40,000-foot the, the overview. Sure. So the basic overview is that uh, I used to live in Chicago. Actually, I was a uh, a planner at an organization called the Metropolitan Planning Council, which is a great local nonprofit for those of you who know something or are interested in learning more about city planning in Chicago. And I worked there from 2013 to 2016, uh, working on issues related to transportation, housing, land use, and, and things of that sort. And while the time while I was there, I actually uh, worked on uh, trying to encourage affordability in the city of Chicago. And one of the ways that uh, we thought it was a good idea to do so was to promote uh, what is called upzoning. And upzoning is this idea that you would be able to build more on the same property. And this is a policy that uh, is sort of under discussion all over the country right now. Uh, because the argument is that if we have more housing available, then we will be able to lower prices. But one sort of fundamental question is whether upzoning by itself, which is just sort of changing the law, will actually induce that new construction, which is what we're all looking for. And um, that's a different question than whether more construction reduces uh, the cost of housing. These are two separate questions. (laughs) But I set out to sort of study the first one, which is, does upzoning result in more construction? And the way I was able mm. to do that is that uh, Chicago in both 2013 and 2015 passed laws that 
did this upzoning thing. They increased what was allowed to be built around all the L and metro stations all mm-hmm. around the city. And um, those changes in law, I basically went about and uh, you know studied the impact of those changes on the amount of housing that was permitted by the city and the value of uh, all transactions that occurred on those properties. Got it. So, um, what 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 were the kind of big conclusions that that you drew from from the study of the data? Absolutely. So, I actually found two primary things. Um, one is, and I should I should point out first of all before I get into the details, I should say that this is a study of relatively short term impacts of the zoning change. Number one. Yeah. Second of all, we don't know what the long term impacts are. Third of all, I'm not sure whether we would see the same impacts if the zoning reform had been done in a different way or in a different place. So I I just want to say that from the very beginning. (laughs) Um, But what I found was in the Chicago case, relatively, almost immediately, within about six months, and this happened both in 2013 and in 2015, the values of the properties that were upzoned increased by about the same amount that they were upzoned by. So in other words, if they were upzoned by about 20% in terms of what was allowed to be built, their values increased by about 20% uh, compared to equivalent properties uh, that were not upzoned. And so this essentially means that, you know, as you might suspect, people who are buying properties say, hey, my property is worth more because I can build more on it. And so they're willing to pay more for buying that property. Now, this was true even for existing housing units. They didn't go up by as much in value, but they still increased in value compared to equivalent units that were not upzoned. So there's that. And then the other thing I found was that that over, again, this short period after the zoning reform, uh, there was not a statistically significant increase in construction compared to the non-upzoned areas in the areas that were upzoned. So when you put these two things together, uh, you end up with a situation that's a little concerning, which is that maybe we saw an increase in values, but not an increase in the amount of housing units actually available. And so this raises concerns about things like gentrification and displacement. Um, but yeah. you know, again, as I said before, we, we have a lot more research to do because this is just over the short term coming after right after the zoning changes. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, I mean, I think, uh, maybe another way of saying this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that what happens is uh, the the specul the speculation uh, just sort of gets unleashed by these these reforms. That's uh, right. Or, or, or maybe the, the speculation's always sort of there, but it leads the actual sort of construction and everything else uh, to the detriment of the people who maybe already live there or people who are seeking affordable housing options. Right. So speculation is, you know, a fact of nature in capitalist cities like Chicago. You know, I mean, the, you know, we're not living in a situation where, uh, you know, land is valued just for the sake of living on it. We're living in a situation where people are trying to make money from the land. And uh, (laughs) that means that when you increase what's allowed to be built there, I find that perhaps not surprisingly, people take advantage of that and they want, you know, they see that as a place where they can make more money. Now, um, yeah. You know, I don't know how different people feel about that as as a as an outcome, but one thing I I think it says is that one zoning matters. You know, it actually has mm-hmm. a real impact on uh, the way property is valued, 
And two, it means that probably in the future, there will be more construction in these areas because if there's willingness to invest more in these properties, then people who are buying probably see some more value in them and therefore are more likely to build more in the future. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole scenario reminds me of, I'm, I'm from Atlanta originally, <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. we saw like a really similar pattern um, around the Beltline, uh, yeah. the, the court of, the, you know, the, the Beltline for those who are listening who don't know, it's a sort of um, uh, an old railroad track that ringed the, the city, uh, the, the kind of downtown area. Um, and uh, someone had the great idea to kind of uh, turn it into actually Ryan, Ryan Gravel. Uh, he, he was, uh, it was his Georgia Tech architecture master's thesis. And then it ended up becoming a kind of real urban project, which is kind of neat. Um, but he, he proposed that that belt line be transformed into a kind of bike paths, bike paths, walking paths, a kind of linear park, and maybe with like um, a tram on it and all these other things. Um, uh, and, and the project started gaining traction. And uh, as it did, the property values shot up substantially and ended up displacing a lot of people before, you know, a shovel even kind of hit the ground. And I, and I think that they had some interesting sort of policies uh, around freezing taxes and things like this to kind of mitigate that, but it, it ended up being kind of too, too little too late. And so, um, you, you know, you kind of mentioned that, that uh, upzoning is sort of what, what one policy amongst many, um, what other kind of policies can be put in place to kind of fix, fix that problem of, the, of that lag? So that's a really good question. I think, uh, you know, the first thing we should know is that this whole movement to push for upzoning is a relatively new one. So we don't necessarily know all the effects. But I do think it's worth pointing out that if there is going to be this delay between when the upzoning occurs and when construction occurs, then we need to find a way to induce the construction as quickly as possible. In other words, we need Mm -hmm. to say, if there's going to be an upzoning, we need to guarantee that there will be developers ready and able to build immediately in these areas that we're upzoning. So that's one thing. And the other thing we need to do is find ways to preserve affordability in these neighborhoods. And we can do that in a variety of different ways. One of them might be saying, you know, as, as a city, we're going to commit more public funding to affordable housing in these neighborhoods. And another is to mm-hmm. say, we're going to say that there's going to be like rent stabilization or protections for existing renters in these same places to make sure that they're not negatively affected by these places. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think um, uh, uh, you know, for me, like this show, this show takes a pretty like unapologetically like left view uh-huh. of 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 the world, um, and uh, uh, but but not necessarily a dogmatic one. Um, and I, I for, but I, I'm really sort of won over by um, a lot of arguments um, around urbanism that talk about like uh, how uh, how the affordability crisis um, is maybe less of a supply and demand problem and has more to do with kind of problems around speculation and uh, land value. Uh, so we've had Karen Narevsky on the show mm-hmm. before. Um, we interviewed her about uh, an article in Jacobin called What's in My Backyard. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm also like really hesitant to like use like yimby, nimby terms because I feel like the discourse 
um, about urban policy. Like everyone's always trying to kind of put things into into easily labelable labelly uh, label labelable that's <laughs> yeah, not a word label. is it <laughs> easy, easy labelable like sort of buckets uh uh and 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 these are these are really big and complicated issues that's especially right. when you start to get into the nuts and bolts of policy um but 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 i'm i'm curious how you as as a kind of as an academic who studies these things like how how do you sort of um how do you see the kind of policy arena yeah. and how do you see studies um, sort of impacting and intersecting with the world of kind of politics um, right. um, and, and, and power, really, right? Because, I mean, um, uh, you know, we can take development as a kind of fact of life in capitalism but um, uh, or, or in the society we have now, but, but at the same time, you know, we can, we can maybe um, be building up a kind of people power that, 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 that uh, hems in some of the kind of power that developers have that that uh, does seem to like exacerbate uh, like you know economic segregation in in the city of Chicago just as as one sort of negative byproduct. Yeah. Um, I, I I realize that's like eight different no, no, no. like half questions <laughs> in a big in a big sort of but 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 um but yeah it's just to kind of set the table and see what you pick up. Yeah, I mean I feel like there are a few different. Uh, you know, you can approach that those questions in, in a variety of different ways. One thing that I think is really yeah. worth pointing out about Chicago specifically is that unlike places like San Francisco, Chicago's real estate market is extremely bifurcated between neighborhoods that have heavy demand and neighborhoods that have almost no demand from um, investors. And that's why I'm, you know, I think everyone listening to the show probably knows that Chicago suffers from a very large amount of vacancy, um, you mm -hmm. know, throughout much of the South and, and West sides, a level of vacancy that is, that is frankly um, very revealing of the sort of inequality we have in our society as a whole. We have uh, such an inequality in our, our society that it shows up in cities that lose their attractiveness in such a dramatic way as, as so many neighborhoods, unfortunately, in Chicago have over the past 60 years. Mm -hmm. And I think what that is revealing of is these sort of deep, um, not only inequalities from a class perspective, but inequalities from a racial perspective that make it so that you can have neighborhoods that are extremely close to downtown in the south and west sides that have essentially you know lost half or more of their population and now have many vacant lots where if you wanted to you could build housing very cheaply you know and that would not be a problem yeah. <laughs> but at the same time right on the other side on the north and northwest sides of downtown you have neighborhoods where that same piece of land you know, from a sort of use perspective is incredibly expensive. And this opposition is really, you know, it's, it's a demonstration of, of, of the fact of nature of American society today, which is that we have not been able to, we have ingrained the inequalities in our society in the land use of our cities and in the real estate markets mm -hmm. related to them. And so when you talk about things like the impacts of zoning change, you know, it's important to point out that this zoning change had very little effect on low-income communities throughout much of the city. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, fundamentally, we our market, the, the, the sort of development market is not 
responsive to neighborhoods where it does not want to invest. And those neighborhoods are the same communities that have suffered, you know, generations of disinvestment. And, you know, the zoning is a reactive tool. It's not a proactive tool in most ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of hoping the market is being responsive to us. We're not telling the market what to do in most ways. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not a way to solve these problems of inequality. If anything, it might exasperate them because what it's going to do is it's going to um, encourage more investment in the neighborhoods that have already attracted the most investment. So that's that's one way to think about zoning. You know, the other thing that's worth pointing out is is another extension of of the way we understand development in the U.S., which is really that we say we assume that the private sector has to be the leader in development. You know, we, we, we put together mm. policies that are maps and we say, respond to our maps, please, private sector, bring <laughs> your money in and do and try to respond to us, right? Instead of saying right. we as a public are going to come together and come up with what we want for our city together and invest together yeah. as our city. And these are fundamentally different ways of, of viewing the world. And I think most American cities have done the former. They've done what Chicago does, which is just say, well, we're going to hope that private investors are going to come in. But listen, I do a lot of research in France. And France is also a capitalist country, but it has a lot more characteristics um, of a social democracy than the U.S. does. And one of those is that it has public developers. And those public developers are owned by city governments. And essentially, they are the leaders of new developments. They go out and they say, this is what we want for these communities. And we're going to figure this out as a, you know, as a city council. And then we're going to invest directly in these communities with these projects. And the result is honestly projects with a lot more uh, affordable housing included in them and uh, a lot less inequality built into the city as a whole. So I, you know, I, I think we can approach development in a different way, but at the moment, um, we're stuck in this reactive view of the world that that makes us reliant on private sector interests, and then we're sort of we become hostile to what they do when it comes to things like land, you know, property value changes when when you rezone things. Right, right, yeah, and I mean, because you, you you mentioned earlier about this kind of like la- lag between sort of upzoning and and building, and and maybe the importance of. Uh, you know, having developers ready to go, but yeah, it, like you know, one one institution that is both you know knows when the zoning change is coming theoretically, yeah. and uh, you know has money at their disposal is is, is the kind of local government, right? <laughs> like, so, right? So like you know, they the, it would be really easy to kind of close that gap in in many ways by by kind of you know b- uh, buttressing sort of public spending. You know, like one. Um, I, so I'm I'm a member of um, uh, Chicago Democratic Socialists of America, uh-huh. and and we've had we have we've been running these socialist night schools, and um, we had one recently on on housing, which was really fantastic. Um, and and we read David Harvey, and and being a kind of lefty person and an architecture student, I've spent a, a many, many, many years reading David Harvey, um, but I have kind of been reading it in a new light, um, you know, with all these conversations about the affordability crisis kind of really coming to the fore. Um, and, and, and he uses this classical Marxist framework of like use value and yeah. exchange value, uh-huh. <laughs> which I think is really, really handy when you're talking about sort of housing, housing, 
because uh, use value is, of course, like how you use your house. You use it as a kind of place to live, right? And the exchange value of your house is the kind of, you know, what you, the price you would get if you sold it. And, and the developers really only care about the exchange value, which makes sense, right? Like, um, um, and, and, and maybe, maybe, um, I, I often think that the, the best policies are ones that either um, uh, decommodify housing, um, or at least at least in part um, by kind of introducing a public sector control uh, to to kind of take like because when you when you're removing exchange value from the equation uh, by by decommodifying housing, uh, it, you're you're also kind of taking away some of that speculation uh-huh. um so that that's that's kind of big and, and abstract still but but it really means things like supporting public housing and, and all of these other all, all these other things so um you you've mentioned sort of the need to do more more research um i'm curious well, can I actually, like can I, respond, does any, can I respond to some of oh yeah yeah things? i mean i think um it's really for those of you who sort of share this interest in coming up with alternative ideas about what can be done? Uh, there's a group called the People's Policy Project, which is sort of a, a left-thinking think tank, um, and they put together a, a report in 2018 called "A Plan to Solve the Housing Crisis Through Social Housing," and this was uh, written mm. by Peter Gowen and Ryan Cooper. And I, I really recommend the report because it's basically a proposal for uh, massively investing in social housing, which is sort of publicly owned affordable Mm -hmm. housing um, for cities all over the country. And this is really a different way of thinking about the way we do development, you know, in, in our society. So I I think that that's actually a a really good idea uh, for, for those of you who are sort of interested in in that. But the other thing is to, to get to this issue of use value versus exchange value. I think this is such an important concept for everyone to understand about the real estate market because um, I think we should just think about it in terms of let's let's get even more basic uh, than housing. Let's think about land where you can build housing. So mm-hmm. you know, let's take the example of um, the area sort of in Bronzeville around the Indiana Green Line Station. So this is just south of Pershing Road um in in the south side of chicago so this is an area that is not not far from where we're recording okay. now <laughs> this is an area that is, yeah, that is yeah, frankly fair. surrounded by vacant parcels where the land has not been able to yeah. achieve uh it's it's sort of exchange value even though the land itself still has that use value right it's useful as land you can build housing on it and this is land that's literally mm-hmm. 13 minutes from right in the heart of downtown Chicago. So this is, in theory, this is great, great location to have people to live and people to, um, you know, to, to thrive. Um, but at the same time, if you go those 13 minutes north of downtown, you have land that is worth millions of dollars uh, per acre. And right. so, you know, what you right. have right there is a fundamentally different view of the exchange value of the land, even though the use value, the ability to use the land as a place to put housing in the future is exactly the same. And, and uh, that's sort of the way we've structured our cities. Yeah, yeah, which, which I, I mean, I think is, is kind of like I, like I said, I'm I'm not dogmatic about urban policy because like up, upzoning is a good thing. And, and I've, I've often heard people like sort of, uh, uh, you know, come back at sort of um, uh, uh, people who are skeptical about um, uh, uh, sort of, 
I don't know, more supply as the solution of the housing, just being like, oh, if you have more people moving to a city, like <laughs> you need more places to put them. Like that should be obvious. And it's like, yes, that, that is obvious. But like, you know, I think in Chicago, we, we have a very, a very different view um, because of these kinds of circumstances that you're describing, um, and and in in many ways, it makes Chicago a really kind of I- ideal place to to study, yep. right? Um, uh, because <laughs> because we have all all of these tensions um, in in one kind of place, and um, you know, uh, basically every every neighborhood has its own sort of dynamics, um, and I, I imagine that can make it a really complicated place to sort of to sort of research as well. Um, and, 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 you know, with, with all of these urban policies, they're, they're all, you know, the devil is in the details. And I, I imagine as a researcher, it's really tricky to kind of be, be able to construct a kind of good study. So, so how, how do you, how do you approach that, um, as an academic? Um, we should, I don't think we, I, I, I'm so bad at introductions. I don't think we mentioned that oh, <laughs> you you are uh, doing a PhD uh, at MIT on urban policy. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm I'm sort of curious how how you how you kind of um, how you kind of think through this stuff when there's so much complexity, um, and also how you kind of talk about it without having to you know. Uh, uh, like add a million caveats to you know uh, 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 maybe um, I don't know plug into a discourse that doesn't want to want want it to be so complex. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably should be adding more uh, Matt, more caveats, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think it's it's definitely worth pointing out um, that any academic study that you see out there that that. Pr- you know, purports to say something big about the world is probably based on a, you know, a relatively small view of something very specific. Because the thing about academic study is that in order to make it statistically valid, you know, or meaningful about a place, you have to be very careful about uh, defining the parameters of the things that you're studying. And when you are trying to define the parameters, you end up having to really focus in on a very specific situation. And that means you may not be able to be as generalizable is the word we use, uh, as you would theoretically want to be. So, you know, I studied what happened in Chicago. Does this mean it occurs that the same thing would occur to every other city in the country? Absolutely not. We don't know that at all, especially because as you just pointed out, Chicago may be uh, you know, a particularly unique city in in certain ways because of its of its real estate market, um, and that's why we're that's why we're going to need a lot more information about what uh, what happens in other cities when they conduct upzonings. And as you pointed out, you know, there's yeah. a there's a difference between the effect of upzoning and the effect of adding additional housing units. Because I didn't find an addition of housing mm-hmm. units, but if you were to find that there was an addition of housing units, then we need to find out, okay, well, what, what was the effect of that on affordability and things like that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the, these things don't really translate great into political slogans all the time. Either. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you start to make them <laughs> more complex. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so what's, what's next for you in, in terms of this study and, and this kind of line of, um, of, of, of interrogation and, and, and questioning? 
Um, what, 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 what kind of questions did this study raise that you feel are, are, are urgent uh, for you? Well, you know, I think that my sort of, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I feel like I, I, I engaged enough in these waters with this study. I'm not particularly interested in pursuing another upzoning, a study of, of upzoning changes. I hope others are able to pursue similar changes. <laughs> but, um, you know, as I said before, yeah. I do do comparative research in France and, uh, in, in the Europe, in European, in the European Union in general. And, um, I think that it's important to do this kind of comparative research on things like housing policy and land use policy, because it can help generate ideas for our cities and our state and national governments for thinking about how they want to respond to the problems that people have or the, the concerns we have about the way our cities work. And, um, you know, not all the things that happen in Europe are positive. Some of them are, are negative, certainly. But by making these comparisons, mm -hmm. we can help generate uh, new views. So that's my primary focus at the moment. Yeah. And um, uh, maybe last question here, and it's, <laughs> it's maybe a little cheeky. Uh, how, how do you not go crazy engaging in urbanist Twitter? Um, you know, I, 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 usually, <laughs> I usually think that like leftist Twitter is like the most in, is sort of intense and like uh, fr frustrating space on the internet. Um, and, and then I will like tweet something and, and urbanist Twitter left right up down otherwise like uh you know just really it, it could be a really um uh enervating space to have a kind of public discourse um yeah. but but i think one of one of one of the reasons why i'm interested in having you on the show is because i think that um uh you you have this this really nice way of sort of tackling these issues and treating them with sort of substance um but but without without um uh uh I don't know, sort of, um, you know, trying to force the issue yeah. in, in, in a particular way. Um, and, 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 and I think you, you you might be the buildings on air guest with the most Twitter followers. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> clear, clearly, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if that's true. Anyway, it, that's not important. Twitter is not like, uh, you know, the, the end all be all here. Uh, but, but I do think that, um, um, you know, it, it does maybe clue us into something about the kind of public discourse around, around these issues. Um, so, so how, how do, how do you, like as a person sort of stay sane and engage in good faith with, with these sorts of things? You, do you have any, any, any words of wisdom or, uh, is it keep, keep your nose in the books or, uh, <laughs> take, yeah. take everyone at a uh, face value? <laughs> I mean, I had an old colleague who I really respected who, when I would get frustrated, people would tell me, always assume people have the right intentions. And you know, that may not be true. There are people yeah. out there who are not good people who don't deserve that. But I also <laughs> think that Twitter has a tendency to allow Twitter, but also sort of the social media life in general, you know, we don't see each other, we don't know yeah. who each other are. It has this tendency to allow people to say inflammatory things, get away with it, and they often get encouraged by others in that way. But I, I mm -hmm. think that yeah. in the real world, most people are actually really nice people. You know, I, I spend a lot of, I do a lot of research. That the, the research that we discussed today is, is, a, is a quantitative piece. It's mostly looking at numbers, but a lot of my research is 
in the form of interviews where I spend a lot of time talking to people. And mm. I talk to people all across the political spectrum, and I don't necessarily agree with them from a personal po- political perspective, but I do think that most people who are in our world are not doing things because they want to hurt each other or because they, you know, uh, are, are being intentionally um, filled with animosity towards others. I think that most people are out there trying to do the right thing. And I, I think that we should promote our views in a, in a positive and um, hopefully non-antagonistic way. And that's kind of the, tr- the way I try to conduct myself online. I often find myself writing mm. things and then deleting them before I publish them because I don't <laughs> think it's helpful. And, um, you know, I think that that's probably the way to sort of survive in, in today's world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, generosity as a tool of survival. Uh, I, I think that's a really great place to end. And I, I thank you for being generous uh, with your time and uh, in coming on the show, is there any any last minute thing that you want to say or, or or something we missed that's important? Oh no, I mean, I just I think it's great to think about the way we conduct urban planning as an ideological issue, as a and as an issue that deserves thinking about class and thinking about impacts on different parts of society. I, I think that unfortunately, that's not the way urban planning is often discussed. It's often discussed as sort of a technical thing. Like we can just solve problems by finding yeah. the so-called best practice when I don't think that that's, that exists. So I, I think that that approach is really important and something we need to encourage more of. So I'm, I'm excited about that. <laughs> I'm really excited about that. Fantastic. I, I, I totally agree. And, and, um, and, and for that reason, you have an open invite to buildings on okay. Earth. If there's any uh, study, uh, study or urban issue you would like to discuss, uh, uh, we, we'd love to have you back. Yona Freemark, thank you so much for coming on Buildings on Air. Um, and hopefully we'll talk cool, to you later. Thanks for having me. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.